Our reading this morning can be found on page 1122 of the Pew Bibles. It is saying from Acts chapter 25, beginning at verse 1. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus as a favour to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day, he convened the court and considered that, and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood round him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. Then Paul made his defence. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law, or against the temple, or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favour, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have not done anything wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges are brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, There is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held, held over for the emperor's decision, ordered him to be held, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. This is the word of the Lord. May I speak in the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. They had some points of dispute about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, whom Paul claimed was alive. Here in this one sentence, 22 words in English, is Portius Festus' summary of the case Jewish religious elite 
versus Roman citizen Paul. Or, to be more precise, legalistic Judaism versus the Christian gospel of grace. It all hinges, says Festus, on a dead man named Jesus, whom Paul claims is alive, which, when you think about it, was pretty astute of him, bearing in mind that he's only been in the province of Judea about a fortnight. Because, let's face it, the ferocity of Jewish opposition to Paul must have been difficult for Festus to understand, to take in. Paul has been under wraps down in Caesarea for well over two years, imprisoned in the governor's palace, wheeled out occasionally to chat with Governor Felix, the previous governor, who was obviously intrigued by Paul, but wouldn't set him free for fear of upsetting the Jews. His wife, this is Felix's wife, Drusilla, was Jewish, so I think he had a bit of a conflict of interest here. But Paul hadn't been proclaiming his gospel message in Jerusalem itself for all of that time. So why were the Jews still so upset with him? Well, I guess they felt that Paul's message threatened their power, status, and significance. They refused to believe that this man, Jesus, whom they and their friends and so on on the Sanhedrin had crucified a couple of decades previously, how he could possibly be the Christ, the Messiah, prophesied in their own Jewish scriptures. So Paul's claim undermined their core beliefs, the core beliefs of their religious authority and leadership, which meant that there was no alternative. Paul had to die. And having been thwarted in their plot to assassinate him a couple of years earlier, do you remember those... 40 guys who, back, this is back in chapter 23, 40 guys who swore a solemn oath that they wouldn't eat or drink anything until they'd killed Paul. I wonder whatever happened to them. Anyway, having once been thwarted, they were determined that he wouldn't escape again. So when Festus was appointed governor in place of Felix, they immediately sought to persuade him of Paul's guilt. They wanted death, not justice. Now, by all accounts, Festus was a much better ruler than Felix. Contemporary records credit him with much greater wisdom and honesty and integrity. And it certainly seems from our passage today that he was open-minded, willing to listen to advice, unencumbered by preconceptions and conflicts of interest, and crucially prepared to apply the established procedures of the Pax Romana, the, the golden age of, of Roman imperialism, fairly and without bias. Indeed, it was Festus' rigorous working style that protected Paul from the worst excesses of the Jewish religious leaders and, more importantly, enabled him to take the gospel message to the heart of the empire, to Rome. So, today's passage hinges on whether Festus should release Paul to the Jewish authorities. Paul knows that they are hell-bent on killing him, so he strongly objects, all the while boldly protesting his innocence of the bogus charges leveled against him. And eventually he does something which is quite radical, which he can do as a Roman citizen. He appeals directly to the Emperor Nero 
in Rome. To which Festus responses, after some consideration, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. Now in one respect, that lets Festus off the hook. It's the perfect opportunity for him to kick a difficult problem upstairs to a higher authority, indeed to the highest authority. But it also puts Festus on the spot because he now has to write an official report detailing the charges against Paul and the reasons for his appeal. Thankfully, help arrives in the shape of King Agrippa and his consort Bernice, both of whom are Jewish, of course, and therefore likely to be much better informed about Jewish religious matters. And it was important for Festus to get Agrippa's advice and support because Agrippa was actually pretty well respected by the Emperor Nero. And you know what? This is exactly what God had in mind all the time. Do you remember when Paul had his fateful meeting on the road to Damascus, this fateful meeting with Jesus, he was blind for a while. And God primed a guy in Damascus called Ananias to go and find Paul and lay hands on him and restore his sight. Because, as God told Ananias, he is my, Paul is my chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles and kings. And here's the fulfillment of that prophecy made 23 years previously. Gentiles, of course, the Roman authorities. Kings, Agrippa, and then later, Nero. And it's during discussions with King Agrippa that Festus gives his assessment of the case against Paul. When his accusers got up to speak, they didn't charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, whom Paul claimed was alive. The fact that Festus, a Gentile, had identified this as the key to the dispute between Paul and the Jewish leaders is evidence, I think, of how successfully Paul's ministry had focused on Jesus' resurrection as the central issue of Christian faith and doctrine. The great turning point in world history. As we've already seen, as far as the Jewish leaders were concerned, this was heresy, blasphemy. But for Paul, well, there was absolutely no doubt in his mind that Jesus was, Jesus is, alive. Paul knew this for a fact because he'd met him that time on the road to Damascus. And they'd chatted on several occasions since. So Paul knows that this dead man named Jesus is in fact alive. But what does Festus make of it? Well, of course, we don't know, do we? I mean, he may have been the sort of person who dismisses the concept of resurrection out of hand on rational grounds. It's contrary to reason, implausible, impossible. And there are, of course, many people down through the ages and to this very day who think that way. They may perhaps agree that Jesus did in fact live at some time in history 
at some geographical location or other. But when he died, he died. End of story. And for such people, Paul's claim is preposterous. But actually, Festus may not have felt this way because the Roman and Greek mythology is littered with deities of one sort or another who are said to have died and been reborn. Bacchus, for instance, the god of wine. So Festus may not have been completely unfamiliar with the concept of resurrection, of life after death, but he may just have filed it away under mythology or superstition. As I say, we, we don't know what Festus thought, but for sure there are many people down through the ages and to this very day who like to think that there's something beyond the grave, life after death, if you will, but who've never really got round to defining what it might be like. You know, you hear people say, oh, become an angel, a star in the sky. But back to Festus. Whatever he believed about resurrection as a concept, whether illogical or fanciful, I'm absolutely certain that he didn't understand the personal relevance to his own life and work of a dead man named Jesus. And in this regard, sadly, tragically, he's just like most people in this country today. All those people we come across in our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our educational establishments, our recreational facilities, who can't see the personal relevance of a dead man named Jesus who churchy people claim is alive. And this is where you and I and everybody in the church families of the Cornerstone team, this is where we come in. If Jesus is to become more than just a dead man, just a historical figure, in the way we present him to others, we've got to show by the way we live that Jesus is alive in us. That he's living in us, guiding us, encouraging us, strengthening us. And in whatever we do and however we behave, we must pray to God that we are being the best witnesses we can be to Jesus living in us and through us. It's a sad fact, you know, that for many people in this country today, all they know about Jesus is that his birth at what we call Christmas and his death at what we call Easter give us two conveniently spaced opportunities to holiday. Once in the winter, in what in the West is now little more than a secular festival of pagan revelry and overindulgence, and one in the spring, a chance to escape the winter drabness of this country. I guess what I'm saying is that for most people in this supposedly Christian country of ours, virtually the only relevance to Je of, of Jesus today is holidays. They just don't see how God or Jesus are relevant to their everyday lives. And for such people, Jesus is indeed just a dead man that, as I say, churchy people still like to talk about. What makes something relevant? Or well, something is relevant if it helps us to meet a need. Something's relevant when we can't live without it. Something is relevant if it helps us to improve 
ourselves as individuals, as, as, as spouses, as parents, as friends, as carers. But the bottom line is that if the church and we in the church family cannot demonstrate how someone who died 2,000 years ago or so is relevant to people's lives today, then all we're doing is painting a picture of a dead man named Jesus who we're trying to claim is alive. Now, of course, many will reject Jesus, whatever we do or say. Festus did. Festus was a pretty good ruler, one of the better ones. But even after encountering the relevance of Christ in the life of Paul, he still viewed Jesus as a dead man, and a dead man and a dead issue in his life. So sadly, but inevitably, some will reject Jesus, never making room for him in their lives. But there are others who will receive him, and in doing so will experience an awesome life change. That, that's the power of the good news of Jesus. Lives changed. Hope restored, joy bestowed, a release of peace, something to live for. If this is you, well, don't stop. Make sure you encounter the risen Jesus on a regular basis. One shot's not enough. Once a week is not enough. Spend time with the Lord every day. Talk to him, sing to him, worship him, cry out to him, pour out your heart to him every day. Stay connected with the risen and living Lord. Don't let your relationship with Jesus become past tense. Keep it updated. Stay current in your love for the Lord. And if you do this, you will keep on growing and you will be better prepared for the work that God has for you. Which brings us to the final point. Let's talk about the work God has for us. It's the mission of every believer to show by the way we live that Jesus is alive. I don't know if you ever saw the show Mission Impossible back, I think back in the 90s, was it? I don't know. But you'll remember how the secret agent was told about his mission. There was a tape. Remember tapes? And the tape said, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is blah 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 And then the tape would go up in smoke and the agent would go off and save the world. Well, we have a mission to save the world. The interesting thing is that God gives us the freedom to choose whether we'll accept it. He wants us to, but he won't force us. Our greatest mission is to know God and to glorify him. And as we get to know him, we begin to discover what is important to him. People are important to God. That's why he gives us the mission to tell the good news about Jesus to everyone we can. God loves people and he wants them to receive his gift of eternal resurrection life. And our mission is to show people that Jesus is alive. So we need to stay contact, in contact with him, connected with him all the time so that we will keep growing spiritually. And as we do, he will help us carry out the mission he has for us to tell the world about the gospel of grace. Amen.